the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, positive COVID-19 news. And then we're joined by friend of the show, David French, senior editor at The Dispatch. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Aubrey, it is a day that we call Hump Day. Happy Wednesday to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's good to be Wednesday. I'm so confused about the days of the week because Monday was a federal (laughs) holiday. And so, okay. So you feel like it should be Tuesday or the week feels... Where are you? I feel like it should be later in the week or something. That doesn't make sense, though. I know. I'm very confused. I don't know what day it is. I'm trusting you that it's Wednesday. Happy Thursday. (laughs) I'm going to try to convince you now. Uh, Later in the day, I'm going to try to convince you of a different day. Uh, Anyway, we're glad that you're joining us today. Some good news today and, and about coronavirus that I didn't expect to see. This was like really good news. Let me just read the headline. I'm reading this out of NBC Chicago. Uh, Simply says this, Illinois reports zero new COVID deaths Monday for the first time in nearly 500 days. I mean, let's just say hallelujah and clap for that. Absolutely. For the first time, no new COVID deaths in 500 days. 500. So that that just reminds us. Exactly. That reminds us of how long we have been at this. Uh, the almost 500 days dates back to the last time we had zero rec- recorded deaths was March the 16th of 2020. That's craziness. That feels like, I don't even know how to wrap my mind around that. That is crazy. Not at wow. all. Wow. Praise and, God for that. And then anyone who's driven through the state of Illinois, you know, it, it's a big state. And yeah. so... This feels like something worth really celebrating. Absolutely. It's not just that we've been on a downward trend of uh, COVID-19 deaths, which we have been, especially with the vaccinations and everything yep. else. But, Aubrey, this feels like a really big deal that, that maybe isn't being talked about enough. Like literally zero deaths around COVID on Monday Feels like when we say that we've turned a corner, that things feel normal again, like that feels like affirmation of that. Yeah, perhaps hopefully this is like ground zero of the new normal, right? Like that we're just going to keep hearing new reports of days that go by without COVID deaths. And I know there's some fear around the Delta variant. We're seeing all kinds of news reports about that. And I know in other countries, COVID is still wiping, wiping a lot of people away. But let's pause to say Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. This is good news. And I think it's because people are doing their part, right? They're getting vaccinated if they feel comfortable. They're wearing masks if they're not vaccinated. They're being outside. They're they're still social distancing like and hopefully this is a sign of things to come, like we just said. So I don't know how you feel, but it's gotten to the point and I'm happy about this where I don't even remember to grab like it used to be grabbing a mask was like it became second nature like okay i'm going in somewhere right, grab it right i don't even grab it anymore and i feel like most places don't 
ask you, like the, uh, the signs. Let's see, I went into Jewel yesterday. I went into Starbucks yesterday. And both of them said uh, that that masks are encouraged in their places for unvaccinated people. Okay, but and it I didn't like, say, like, mandated. No, wow. I, I, it just feels like we've hit a new... <sighs> Um, yeah, the deep breath. Like yes. it feels like we've hit this new thing. But where are you at with COVID nineteen right now? In terms of, it's over. It's done. Yeah. Uh, life is normal. Here I go. Uh, or no, I'm still really scared, even though I'm vaccinated, and I'm going to be really careful. Like that feels like the spectrum. Uh, where do you find yourself right now? And what do articles like this do for you as you read them? I think generally speaking, because I'm vaccinated, my husband's vaccinated, and our oldest son is vaccinated, we have felt very free to live mm-hmm. our lives, to travel, to be with groups of people. But every once in a while, it does cross my mind. But my little kids aren't vaccinated yet. Mm-hmm. I should probably be more mindful of that. So I'm operating as if COVID is fine. We're not going to get impacted by it. But every once in a while, it crosses my mind like, okay, I guess I should. Pro- we should probably still be cautious for the sake of my little ones, for them spreading it to vulnerable people and for them possibly getting it. And um, but generally, I am so thrilled to be able to go in and out of places again, to to travel, to be with friends. I will say, too, we're the same. We used to just have a stash of masks in the car at all times. And I actually got out of my car and walked into Target the other day without a mask. And I went, do I? I, I, wait, I think I need to go get a mask. I think, you know, and I ran back to my car and I got a mask and I went in and I didn't need one because I have been vaccinated. But it occurred to me like, oh, I just walked in here as if the past, you know, 16 months haven't happened. And that felt pretty good. It really does. And here you brought up the Delta variant before. And then I'd love to know where you're at as a pastor with the church. Yeah. Uh, but the Delta variant, like I know it's a big deal, especially in other countries yeah. right now. But I'm also vaccinated and things feel right. normal again. Right. I'm going to make some people mad right now. I don't give two thoughts to it. Like when I hear stuff on the news, I'm like, whatever. Like we have zero deaths. We're good. Yeah. And I know, you know, I'm not that guy who's like, oh, this is the government making this up. But I'm just like, whatever. Like things are good. I'm going about my life. And uh, but what are you doing right now as a church? You guys have reopened my church. Mm -hmm. We've reopened. But you do. Part of the problem of being a pastor in this is. There are still people all across yeah. the board. There really are. So yeah. how are you and Kevin navigating that as, you know, you probably you guys are like, let's uh, got right. high energy. Right. But then you still have the people go, well, no, I still don't feel comfortable. How are you guys navigating that right now? I think in one sense, thankfully, because we use a community space, the decision has been made for us. And they because they're a community space, they're owned by the city. And so they do have to follow uh, CDC guidelines. So for us, worshiping inside if you are vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. If you're not, you're supposed to wear a mask. We have mm-hmm. all kids wearing masks right now. Mm-hmm. And we still offer an online service uh, for people who don't feel comfortable coming. So in one sense, we are practicing being good neighbors to the building, the building owners, the people who work at the ARC Center where we meet. And the decision's off our shoulders because of that. I think it would be much harder, like in your situation, to have to make the decision ourselves. Now, we're not policing that. I mean, I know, I know, I know, I know people are coming to Renewal Church who have not been vaccinated and aren't wearing masks. We're not saying put a mask on. We're not dumb. (laughs) Right. We're just, we're putting the information out there and that's what's happening. What about you guys? Very similar. Uh, Like, uh, I just have a hard time. Like, I get reminded, I want to be good with everybody wherever they are in Mm -hmm. the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I just assume most people are good now. Right. And then I have a conversation with someone like, oh, that's right. Like, so it's more like, 
I'm not talking to talking down to them like, how oh, come on? Let's right, go. Right. But I, it's just out of my mind right yeah. now that there's some people like, nope, I'm not going into crowded spaces. Yeah. I'm not going to go anywhere without a mask. I'm not ready. And you're just like, oh, that's right. Well, no, we get online and this. <laughs> right, and right. So, yeah, we still stream online. And um, it's exactly what you said. Hey, here's the CDC language. You do not have to wear a mask if you're vaccinated. If you do, if you are not vaccinated, you still should wear a mask. But. We're not asking. We're not not checking for. We're not at the front door and and doing that. And some people have asked me that. I'm like, nope. Just no. That's between you and the Lord and choices. So really good news. No, for the first time since March 16th of 2020 on Monday, uh, no COVID 19 related deaths in the entire state of Illinois. I think we've we've shared so much bad news that that is worthy of celebrating and marking. I think that's a big deal. Well, coming up next, friend of the show, David French is going to join us. Here's a couple things we're going to talk about. Uh, how do Christian patriots love their country well? Uh, he wrote some stuff about critical race theory. David French was also the genesis of your and I's conversation about the arrival of aliens. Oh, yes. I'm very excited to talk aliens with David French. We are going to discuss all of that and more with our friend David French coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, we are glad to be joined by a legitimate friend of the show. Uh, David French is the senior editor at The Dispatch, also a columnist and author. Uh, he is part of his blog post is called The French Press. And David, we love having you on. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Even though we've had you on a bunch of times, if there are people tuning in who don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, I'm a um, former, well, I'm still actually an attorney, but former constitutional litigator, currently journalist, uh, veteran, husband, father, Mm. Christian, um, and not necessarily in that order that I just (laughs) went out. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's that's the, and Tennessee dweller, so that's the quick bio. We jokingly said you're you're with all of our former neighbors, all of our Illinois friends moving They've down all to moved Tennessee. Down by David French, they're all down there with you. So, uh, David, I wanted to start a couple different places, but you were just part of a New York Times opinion piece written by uh, a couple different people. Again, you were one of them, and it is entitled "This: We Disagree on a Lot of Things Except the Danger of Anti-Critical Race Theory Laws." Now, there's no bigger conversation I think going on around Twitter and everywhere, you know cable news than critical race theory. So can you help us understand what you see as the danger of some of these anti-critical race theory laws going on right now? Yeah, so <laughs> let, let, me, let me sort of start at the top. Uh, one, they're inherently deceptive because they don't actually ban critical race theory. So mm. if you know about or are concerned about critical race theory, which my own view of it is that there are some elements of it that are helpful and some elements elements of it that are not helpful, um, then right off the bat, you're, it's a bit, they're, they're misleading. So what they are doing is they ban, to varying degrees, discussions of certain concepts. Now, some of the concepts are pretty, unco- you know, that it's pretty uncontroversial that they shouldn't be taught in school, mm-hmm. like that one race is superior to another right, race. Right. Uh, but there's already laws that prohibit that kind of grotesquely racist um, instruction. 
But then they steadily get more and more sort of complicated and vague and broad to the point where, for example, in, in Tennessee, um, you're even going to be prohibited from including an instruction uh, a kind of uh, ideas that would disparage a creed. A creed. Well, mm-hmm. communism is a creed. Mm-hmm. So wait, is it now? Is it now unlawful in Tennessee to to disparage communism? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are very poorly written laws. Uh, mm-hmm. Kentucky has Kentucky has proposed a law that bans discussions of certain concepts in informal and formal classroom discussion. Mm-hmm. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you have so. The problem with the laws is that they're very broad, they're very vague, it's very hard to tell what's actually banned and what's not actually banned, and so a couple of things are happening at once. One is that in a lot of places around the country, people are hyping CRT as something that is just everywhere, when it's in some places, there's no question about it, and there's some toxic stuff that you will see around the country, no question about it. But they say that it's basically everywhere and that these laws are coming to save the day. And mm-hmm. what's actually happening is these laws are going to stifle and shut down conversations about difficult and important topics. Mm-hmm. And so if you're concerned about the kinds of behaviors like we've seen in some schools, like where, for example, students or faculty are separated into racial affinity groups, which is something that is already, you know, unlawful under federal civil rights law, that there are remedies for this, like that federal civil rights laws can be used. Or if you see curriculum that is being proposed in your school district, it's bad curriculum. You don't like it. It doesn't uh, teach history accurately. Well, then you should propose better curriculum. But mm-hmm. these these laws are, very, are designed to stifle discussion. And that is mm-hmm. a serious problem. And yeah. if the laws are beyond K-12 and into college, which several of the states are proposing and even passing laws that be, go beyond K-12 education and into college, they're unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And so, so they present a real problem that they are stifling discussion. And mm-hmm. that, is, that is something that is um, a real danger when you're talking about educating kids to be part of a constitutional republic that protects and respects free speech. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow, David. Can, can, you, um, can you expound on that a little bit more? Why is it so dangerous that we aren't educating our kids and the next generations to discuss different issues? Like, what is the actual danger there? Yeah, well, you know, one of the fundamental realities of a America is that we're a, we're a diverse and increasingly diverse country. In other words, we're not just racially diverse or ethnically diverse, we're religiously diverse, we're ideologically diverse. There are a lot of different viewpoints and ideas and worldviews in this country. And one of the things that our, our founders understood is that if you're going to put, if you're going to sort of keep a very diverse country together, you have to have a culture, uh, a culture of free discourse, of uh, a culture of free speech and the First Amendment and, and a free exercise of religion. And so the First Amendment is the, the way in which we sort of keep this marketplace of ideas alive. And, but it doesn't happen naturally. The natural thing is that we want to censor the people we disagree with <laughs> and, yeah, and right. liberate the people we agree with. The sort of the natural human nature thing is free speech for me and not for thee. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. 
that is something that is antithetical to our American experiment. And so, but that has to be taught generation by generation. You have to be taught to participate in this marketplace of ideas. And you know, this is an argument that, as a as somebody as a uh, conservative, I made on college campuses for years and years and years, and people cheered it. You know, people on the right cheered it. Yeah, we we want to teach people about the marketplace of ideas. But then now you're seeing a lot of people on the right wanting to shut down the marketplace of ideas, especially when it comes to really uh, thorny and difficult issues around race. And and so the position in the op-ed is pretty simple. Look, if there is a problem with a toxic form of, of, you know, um, whatever term you want to use, CRT or quote-unquote wokeness, there are legal remedies that already exist, and in fact, people have filed lawsuits against things like that. Hmm. And if there's curriculum that's bad, you can advocate for better curriculum. But what you should not do is pass really broad and vague laws that shut down discourse and shut down discussion. Mm. That's that's really good, David. I, I wonder, and we're gonna you're gonna stay with us. We're gonna talk about some of the other articles you've written, but you're you know really interested in the Supreme Court, a lawyer, a scholar. Uh, I was having a discussion with a brother-in-law of mine about just how this current Supreme Court has been. Have you been surprised or pleased? What's your take just on this current Supreme Court? Because there was a lot of thought going into it, like, oh, they're going to be this, they're going to be that. What is just kind of your take about how they've actually uh, judged and worked? Well, you know, I haven't been a surprise to some people, but I think the very um, the, one of the big takeaways is that this court has been a lot more unified yeah. Yeah. than people expected, and and that's something that I think is a, if you not if you is the court is the court decisions are based on whoever appointed the person to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. that uh, for, you know six three Republican appointee court, so therefore I know how everything is going to turn out. That has been really that is really. Um, surprised a lot of people that that's not been the case, that time and time and time again, big important cases have been decided, you know, eight to one or nine to zero or with very scrambled ideological alignment. Now, there have been some big cases that have been decided six three on those ideological lines, but the big majority of the very important cases in this court have been uh, with, with, you know, majorities that included some of the Democratic appointees or some of the Republican mm-hmm. appointees were surprisingly in the minority. And mm. what's happened is that you have seen a critical mass of the court has really been striving most big cases to create sort of cross-ideological uh, alignment. Um, and and this has scrambled a lot of people's expectations about the court. And, and I think in many ways what's happened is the court has chosen to go for smaller, less sweeping rulings that get a bigger majority than going for more sweeping, contentious rulings that have a smaller majority. Mm -hmm. And that is a very, very interesting approach. And it's one that I think has actually helped, to the extent anything does, turn down the temperature Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. um, politically and culturally in this country. Absolutely. David French, the senior editor at The Dispatch. Uh, author of Divided We Fall. Also, his blog is called The French Press. We're thrilled that David's going to stay with us. 
on July 4th, you asked and wrote about such an important question. And so I'm just going to ask you the question that, that was the title of your article, your blog post, just this. How do Christian patriots love their country well? How do you answer that question? Well, I have a one-sentence answer that I explain in about a 2,000-word answer. (laughs) (laughs) And the one-sentence answer is by seeking biblical justice more than Christian power. Mm. And and I think, you know, one of the ways in which a lot of uh, Christians have been brought up is to say, well, the real, the real, the goal here um, is to put Christians in positions of high places. Mm. high places, but to put Christians in power. If you put Christians in power, then good things will happen. And so a lot of you know decisions were made on the basis of, and I, and I talked about, for example, in the 2016 election, that one reason that a lot of people gave me to vote for Donald Trump uh, and tried to persuade me to vote for Donald Trump was, well, if he wins, he's going to appoint a lot of evangelicals into mm. positions of power. Yeah. Yeah. And and he did. He did appoint a lot of evangelicals, and yet we still ha- were racked with all kinds of serious problems yeah. in the country. And it doesn't necessarily flow that when you have a Christian in a position of authority, that therefore justice is done. Mm. And because what ends up happening is the pursuit of power becomes its own end. And so, you know, we had, sadly, just a lot of Christians involved in that Stop the Steal effort. You had a lot of Christians who were, like at the Jericho March in Washington, and a lot of Christians who were storming the Capitol mm. because of that hunger and that quest for power. And, and the way I put it is, rather than the quest for power, the quest, what, you're, what we're asked to do in the Bible is to seek justice. Mm. That again and again and again, when you're talking about the relationship of a Christian person, a believer in Jesus, a believer in God, to their community, that word comes up, justice, justice, justice. And there, there, if that is your priority, if you are seeking justice, there are many ways to seek justice that don't involve you being in charge of them. Right. That's good. <laughs> And so one of the things that I was saying is that if you reorder your priorities and your priority is towards justice as opposed to your own personal advancement and your own power and thinking that justice will flow from your power, which is a sort of a effective way of appealing to your own ambition, for sanctifying your own ambition, right? Um, but if your focus is on justice, it transforms in many ways the ways in which you interact with your community. And that's that is how a... Christian patriot loves the country well by seeking justice, mm-hmm. by seeking the good of their home, their, the good of their, their land, and and uh, changing that paradigm. And, and when you change that paradigm, it really reorders the way you think about politics in mm-hmm. important ways. Mm, that's good. David, let me um, just step back a little bit from that. For for the listeners who may not even understand, like, what is biblical justice? What is it that you're actually calling Christians to be passionate about? How would you define that? Yeah, there, there's a great, um, our, and, and I'm taking inspiration here, from just a really fantastic essay that was done that Tim Keller did, mm. you know, former pastor and, and theologian Tim Keller, about what is biblical justice I mean. And this isn't the last word on it. I mean, there's no one person who's going to have sort of the last word. But he has four sort of 
characteristics of it. One of them is radical generosity. Mm-hmm. It is, and I love the way there there is a quote that he used about what is radical generosity. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. Mm. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Mm. The radical generosity, you willing to pour, pour yourself out for their, your community. Another one, universal equality that requires every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect, regardless of race, class, ethnicity, etc. Another one is life-changing advocacy for the poor. You mm. cannot read Scripture and not discern the special concern for the poor. And then the last one is both individual, and this is really important, corporate responsibility. A lot of conservatives understand the necessity of individual responsibility and individual accountability, but Keller notes that the Bible is constantly reminding us that institutions have responsibility as well, nations have a responsibility as well. And so, you know, the New and Old Testament have are replete with examples of corporate responsibility. And so these are some basic concepts, equality, generosity, advocacy, responsibility, that, by the way, don't have a particular partisan frame to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, you know? right. So neither Team Red or Blue has got those things all right. squared away. <laughs> so it really does change the paradigm. Wow. It does. It does. All right, David, let's ask you about one more blog post that uh, had quite some fun uh, on our radio show we discussed about a week ago. And this, this is where we said we have to have David on again. Yep. You wrote a blog post that we had a ton of fun with called, When the Aliens Come, Will Their Arrival Destroy Our Faith? Or will it teach us that creation is more magnificent than we imagined? Uh, like I said, we had kind of a great conversation around that. I would just love to know, why did you write this and where do you land? How, how would you answer your own question there? Yeah, well, you know, it's fun. When you have your own uh, newsletter, you get to write about fun things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I've always been like a sci-fi nerd and, and, and been very interested and in, in fascinated by space and the universe and the cosmos and all of that. And the, the occasion for the article was the release of the UFO report. Right, um, right. Um, the the um, national, you know, the, the national intelligence apparatus. And, and how it left a lot of things unanswered. And I've always had this question, what would it do? What would and it turns out there's actually a lot of theological scholarship on this very question. Lots of serious people have pondered it. Lots of very serious people. And so the funny thing was, and the thing that just uh, kept amusing me, is that you were having a, a lot of atheist scholars who were sort of pondering this saying, Ha, ah, well if aliens show up that'll really shock Christians mm. and it will really mm. show how, you know, their faith is, in, you know, it's ridiculous. And then all there's all this Christian scholarship that's going basically alien, cool. <laughs> 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 and in the, the disconnect, and I think that one of the things that I think the, uh, uh, the, the atheist scholarship misses is how we're already, as, as Christians, can, uh, comfortable with the notion that there's something else out there. You know, mm-hmm. we, we think of, you know, angels and demons and heaven and, you know, these are other places and other creatures and created entities. And the other thing is that the Bible is, is 
silent on the existence of extraterrestrial life, but is rich with description of the wonder and mystery of creation. Mm-hmm. And so, so you know, uh, and, and the funny thing is, the more I pondered it and started to think about it, um, you know, if you, in, in an interesting way, uh, the belief in a creator God might actually make the existence of aliens more likely, because... Mm-hmm you know what, there's going to be exactly as many or exactly as few civilizations as the Creator God wills. Right. Uh, whereas, if you're somebody who's completely atheistic, what you have to believe is essentially that random some of these random chances, just over the sheer weight of mathematics and time, are going to create a bunch of other civilizations. Well, that may or may not be true. Right. Um, and so, you know, what I found just interesting with this was a the amount of theory of scholarship about it, um, and then and then b the uh, the silence of scripture, but c the the absolute presence in scripture of you know awe at creation and mm. its mystery and its wonder, and so it just made me. It was a fun little thought experiment, yeah. you know, um, and it actually in a way a faith building thought experiment because of. It reminded me once again of the wonder of creation as I was just sort of walking through all of this scholarship and these scriptures. And then, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, if the spaceships do arrive, we're all going to freak out. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth, right? I, oh, so we'll have you on another time to discuss my my co-host saying definitively that there are ghosts around us. So we'll, we'll yes, have that conversation we'll as that. well. Cowboy oh, that's a whole that's a whole conversation. Maybe, you know, maybe we need to have our, a newsletter about that. There, you go. there we go. There you go. You can check all of that we've talked with David about, including the aliens. You can do that at the French Press. Uh, you can find that at thedispatch.com. That's thedispatch.com. I would also highly encourage you to follow David on Twitter, at David A. French. That's at David A. French. David, you're always so generous with your time. It's great to catch up. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Hope you're doing well. I found this fascinating kind of first-person article at the Gospel Coalition. You can find great stuff at thegospelcoalition.org, written by a guy by the name of Kyle Don. And uh, he wrote uh, about the time where he and his wife were on an airplane and they had to brace for a crash. Whoa, that's scary. I want you to think, okay, this is going to sound really morbid. It all turns out great. Okay. Plane doesn't crash. Now, it actually becomes part of it at the end. So really morbid thought here. What would you (gasps) do in that situation? Would you freak out? Would you... Uh, what, what are you doing in that situation? I mean, I feel like anytime I've been on a plane when there's turbulence, I just tend to like... Grab my kids' hands, grab my husband's mm-hmm. hand, tell them I love them, and I'm like praying, like Jesus, Jesus, help us, Jesus, you yeah. put your hands underneath this plane. <laughs> so it might be like freaking out, but it's a faithful freaking out. It's a faithful, yeah, God yeah. Freaking yeah. Out. What about you? Oh, I'd be the same way. I'd be yeah. terrified. Yeah. I would just be uh, terrified. And that's what he talks about. That the flight attendants came through. Let me tell a little bit of the story. Okay. Him and his wife Brittany are on an airplane going from Charlotte to Seattle. Okay. Uh, and they announced moments earlier that their plane was experiencing engine failure and needed to prepare for a crash landing. Oh. The flight attendants ran frantically up and down the cabin. So this isn't recent. So I don't want people to think like, how did I oh, miss this okay. on the news? This okay. is at some a point. While ago. Uh, 
Uh, he goes, I missed their explanation on exactly how to brace. I wondered if I was doing it right. I saw a grown man crying, mm. another couple holding hands tightly. He said, I've never felt so out of control or totally exposed or honestly so scared. Wow. Uh, he said three rows from the back of the plane. I with absolutely no ability to change anything that was about to happen. Mm. I played through my mind what the next few minutes could be like as I thought I would be meeting God. So then he he takes a moment to hold his wife's hand and they remind themselves from the Westminster Catechism. <laughs> which I, love using from their <laughs> I love that. I love that. They spoke these words back and forth. I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in both life and death to God and to Jesus Christ, my Savior. Mm. Uh, and they continue doing this. But here's what becomes amazing. He then preached a 30-second sermon to the lady next to him. <gasps> Come on. Yeah, he said... Uh, you know, she said something. He said he asked her, if we die in the next few minutes, do you know what's going to happen to you? Like, this is, becomes an amazing wow. story. And then he says to her, I'm going to share with you why my wife and I hope have hope right now. I hope that's okay. She said it was. Then I started preaching to a larger group in the rows around me loudly over the sound of the plane. He said, I don't want to scare anyone, but I want you to know why my wife and I have hope right now. We have the peace of God. A couple heads turned. He said, the God who made everything wants to make peace with us, even though we've broken his world. His world. He loves you so much that he left heaven to make peace with sinners by dying on a cross. His name is Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe mm. in your heart that Jesus is the risen Lord and you'll have peace with God. He said no one laughed or no one scoffed. Wow. And then, the, long story short, the plane's okay. Yeah. Like they they yeah. land fine. In fact, yeah. they were told later that they were probably never in any real danger. And let me end, and then I want to know what stands out from this. He mm-hmm. said what was amazing uh, was they land, everybody cheers, hollering, clapping, cheering. Everyone called a loved one or two. Uh, they step off. They go to the replacement plane. I don't know if I could get on a replacement plane at that point. Oh, I think I might be done flying at that point, too. And then immediately he says everything went back to normal. People grabbed their phones, were just scrolling through social media, playing Candy Crush, oh. watching Netflix like nothing else could happen. Oh, I feel like that's a little dark. But then he basically said what he learned there is that any moment could be your last. You're not in control. Be ready. So ton of stuff to that story. Yes. I found this and it was so... Uh, convicting totally. to me that that's what they did in their last moments. But what jumped out in that story to you from Kyle? Dom? I mean, one, I'm like, oh, this guy's a real Christian. Like, ah. you know what I mean? Like, his first instinct at death is to evangelize to his neighbors. And I just love, I love a few things about it. I love that that was his first instinct that the Holy Spirit just said, now's your moment. Mm-hmm. I love that he had a 30 second gospel explanation ready. I don't know if a lot of Christians could explain the gospel in 30 seconds. And I love that he looked around and saw there are hurting people. What is the only hope I can offer mm. right now? It's the hope of Jesus Christ. And I don't know that I would do the same thing in that scenario. I I'd, think be, I'd so be so focused on my yeah, family and myself. Yeah, yeah. self-focused that I, it would, I would be hard-pressed to move outward. And so I actually think this is quite a, quite a powerful example. And then I, I also think generally like, okay, two things. I just want to step back from it a little mm-hmm. bit. I feel like in general in the church in evangelical America, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's just people I'm around, People seem to be losing a passion for evangelism. I think you're right. Like, I don't know that people are concerned about um, others' souls, their eternal destination, their peace with God now. They're experiencing the presence of the ki- of, of God and the kingdom of God. Like, I feel like we've lost some hmm. of that. Why do you think that is? Uh, I, I'm trying to figure that out. I, You know, I had a professor at Wheaton, a gospel coalition guy actually named Trevin Wax, mm-hmm. who says that because we've sort of— um, eliminated talk of eschatology, talk of heaven and hell from a lot of our sermons and a lot of our discussions, 
that um, there's no instinct anymore. There's no passion anymore to like simply save mm-hmm. souls, which I know even me saying that people would be like, oh, we can't talk like that anymore. Mm-hmm. But really, why can't we talk like that anymore? And And part of me wonders if even in my own heart, am I convicted about, am I convinced of the love of Jesus mm. enough that I want to open my mouth on my literally going to my death and share Jesus with people. That's convicting. You're you know? right. Yeah. It, it's convicting. And then I also think the beautiful example of he saw people hurting. He gave them hope. And, mm-hmm. and even if we're not in an airplane that's crashing down. Right. We are surrounded by people everywhere that are wounded and hurting and weary, and we can offer them gospel. Hope. That becomes his point of this article. Like, hey. Uh, that was a traumatic event, but all around, A, our lives could end at any time, which is kind of, you know, the book of James. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also that, like you said, as we're going through our life, there's bigger things going on. There are people hurting and people yeah. need to hear about Jesus. He says exactly what you were just hinting at. He says, for me, the Flight 2775 experience was a wake-up call to speak the gospel more often and more boldly wow. to my unbelieving friends and family. Uh, this idea, I think you're 100% right. There has been the shift. I remember being in youth group as a kid when I was in high school. We literally went to a camp to learn how to share our faith. Yeah, it was yeah. weird. It sure, had some issues. Sure. But, but the premise behind it was correct. Like, let's equip these students to know how to, to tell their story, yeah. to know how to share their faith, yeah. to know and to have a passion yeah. for people. I do think you're right. There's a... Um, there's a comfortability mm-hmm. about our faith and life. There's a we've kind of become culturally like you can't right. offend can't anybody. Really go there. Don't go there. But you, I think you make a great point that there is. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, mm-hmm. if we really believe that that's where abundant life is found now and forever, mm-hmm. then that would come out of us. And so, really, right. a lack of evangelism, I would say. Maybe you. I wonder if you agree with this. A lack of evangelism does speak to a lack of understanding on our own part of what the gospel truly is. Right. I think it's a lack of passion on our own part. It's a lack of maybe remembering our own first love and and Mm -hmm. what a great salvation we've received. And I think it is also forgetting like this is life or death and eternity for people. And and we I, I don't know. I feel like it's become unpopular to say that even in Christianity. But the reality is like this is life or death for people. And so. We have to, it's not obviously on us to quote unquote save people, but it is on us as Christians to share the reason for our hope. And I, I think a good, good challenge for all of us is the fact that he has this 30 second sermon at the tip of his tongue. The God who made everything wants to make peace with us, even though we've broken the world. He loves you so much that he left heaven to make peace with sinners by dying on a cross. His name is Jesus. Like, just have that ready. I think that would be a good practice for all Christians. Yeah, I'd love to encourage you to go to the Gospel Coalition and check out this story and this article. I think it's convicting. I think it's a really important thought process. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about evangelism in general, I'd point you to Rick Richardson's stuff. Rick Mm -hmm. Richardson's stuff is unbelievable. So good. Just Google him and check it out. Well, coming up next, I want to talk a little bit about global Christianity. And some stories that are hard to listen to, but I think are important for us to digest. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're talking about the horrible news of the Nigerian Baptist students who've been kidnapped. And we're talking all things pop culture with Britney Spears' conservatorship and what it means to consume other people's identities. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, 
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are happy to have you on this Wednesday afternoon, this hump day afternoon. Well, you know, at The Common Good, and I think just as as pastors, as Christians in general, Brian and I really want to be mindful of always looking outside of what's happening in the American Christian bubble. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes it can be so easy here in the States to get myopic and only focus on what's happening here, especially in a COVID world where it seems like there's so much happening in America all the time. Um, But we do need to step back and recognize that there's a whole world of Christians. A lot of those Christians are suffering. And Today at Christianity Today, a really, really devastating article was Mm -hmm. published about 140 Nigerian Baptist students who were kidnapped. And um, this is the, I mean, there's been kidnappings in Nigeria before. In fact, in 2021, there was a world watch list for 50 countries where it's the most difficult to be a Christian. Nigeria broke into the top 10 for the first time. It's difficult to be a Christian in Nigeria, but this is the... Uh, largest kidnapping that's ever taking taken place. This is actually the fourth mass school kidnapping in um, Nigeria in this area called Kaduna. And so, mm. I, you know, I, I wanted to bring that to our attention for a number of reasons. One, when we pray as Christians, we have got to be praying for that's the right. persecuted church. We just, we around the world, we cannot be focused on ourselves. And um, two, I I think we need to be mindful that we have such a luxury as American Christians to sort of walk around not realizing that there are Christians around the world that are actually being uh, violently opposed because of their faith. Mm -hmm. And I I think um, one of the things our producer actually on The Common Good was saying is that we will be worshiping in heaven with people from all over the world. And so right now, let's practice being brothers and sisters. What did you think about this, Brian? It's uh, I think you did it well by saying it's an it's a necessary eye opener, mm. right? Because we do we get lost and these things are important, but we get lost, like you said, in our kind of Western evangelical bubble talking yeah. about should churches be reopened or Mark Driscoll or this or that. And those are <laughs> right. important conversations to have. But then you start to think about more than 140 kids, students being kidnapped by armed you know, assailants in Nigeria. And that's on top of all these other stories, as you said, that come out of Nigeria. It feels like on a regular basis. Uh, and, and you just are reminded of uh, that there are, you know, the fact that there's even a watch list of 50 countries where it's most difficult to be a Christian reminds you that around the world, it's difficult to be a Christian. That's it. That right? there's even need for a list like that. And uh, I think that kind of um, realization causes all of us here in America, I think, to go, okay, you know, A, well, you know, we've got it pretty good. Like, we do kind of make up some stuff to make it feel like we're persecuted in the sense. This doesn't mean everything's easy. <laughs> right. But, but that there's some places around the world where it is still life or death. That's it. Around whether or not you can be a follower of Jesus. And that then, too, uh, did I say A and two? I think I said one and two. I, I think, think I got this it right time this you're time. doing it right. Yep. That, too... Uh, I think exactly what you said. It it must push us to prayer. It, it must make us as individuals and as a church go, okay, uh, I'm, you know, thank God that I don't live in a situation like this, but I am going to uh, do what I have the freedom to do, and that is to pray and to help in any way. And, uh, and I think third is, again, to recognize uh, the 
that there are people around the world who are risking their life to follow mm. Jesus, who dream of the freedoms that we yeah. have. Yeah. And yet so many of us, myself included, take those freedoms and those opportunities for granted. Yeah. And, and you live, end up living with this kind of comfortable faith that there's not much you know, buy-in to it. And it gets to what we talked about earlier in the show about evangelism. Why do we not feel driven? Mm-hmm. I think that all plays together here. And so for those reasons, I think it's super important for us to remember stories like this. Um, this article also says that Nigeria leads the world in the number of kidnapped Christians with 990 tallied by open doors. And I mean, that is a, that's a shocking number. Um, And, uh, and I think like you just said, Brian, a call for all of us to get on our knees, to pay attention to what's going on in the world around us. And I I think just to remember that there's actual spiritual warfare, there's actual physical warfare, there's actual persecution. And you did just say something that I want to lean into a little bit, Brian, that I do think sometimes in America we sort of make up persecution, like mm-hmm. oh, they're they're out against us because X Y Z, and like you said, that doesn't mean being a Christian is easy in America. That's right. But we are not facing life or death. No. Like let's just be honest about that. And I I think it is a dangerous thing for us to sort of quote unquote take on a victim mindset of persecution when there are actual Christians around the world being killed, being kidnapped for their faith. Yes, yes. Um, so, okay, Brian, if you're encouraging our listeners to pray, how would you invite them to do that? Uh, one is you need to know what you're praying for. So okay. I would say uh, educating yourself by articles like this. But again, we just talked about places like Open Doors uh, or, uh, you know, The Voice of the Martyrs is another great place to look. These types of places uh, world watch list, right? You mm-hmm. could go to these places and find out where are the areas that are facing the most persecution. Uh, and so I would say first, you need to educate yourself. You need to know what's going on around the world as best as you can. And then add it to your prayer list, right? Yeah. Like what's the old saying about prayer? It's that uh, if if God were to answer everything I prayed for today, if God were to go like, no matter what you pray for, I'm going to answer that. Would it affect anybody but me? Mm, you know, and I think that becomes challenging. Good, and the question becomes, you know, can I pray for these these kidnapped kids in Nigeria? And will that make a difference? Part of it is, do I believe that prayer makes a difference as well? So a lot plays that's into good. this. I would say it starts with education. Yeah, it starts with right. getting out of your bubble and going, okay, what is going on around the world? Getting on some of these websites. And like you said, I think it's important. It, it puts into perspective what we have here uh, and and maybe where we overblow some things as well and what's going on around the world. Uh, so, yeah, I'd start with education. How about yourself? Where would you start? You know, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, be educated. Be on your knees. Believe that our prayers work as Christians. And then I, I think the other thing is this, you know, we talk a lot about on the show the use of uh, social media, the positives and the negatives. And I think this is one of those uh, calls to use social media for the good of other people. Share these stories, get other Christians praying, spread the word so that those who are actually in power in some of these places may be held accountable. Someone might be there that can actually do something like you might feel helpless, but actually using your social media presence, small or big, as a tool to spread these stories, I think awakens all of us, awakens the whole world to um, what's going on. And I, I think that's the other thing, that awakening piece. Yes, there's a there's a Ugandan theologian named Emmanuel Katangole who talks about how Part of the sin of the church is that we have fallen asleep 
to the voices of the martyrs, the things mm. that they have suffered. And so this is just a repeat of what we've been saying here, Brian, but we do need to wake up in America to what people are facing and um, not walk blindly, not walk selfishly, but walk um, with our eyes wide open, reaching out through prayer and through whatever efforts we can to care for the persecuted Agreed, church. agreed. That's really good. And I, I like that you, how you said that name. What was that name again? Emmanuel Katangole. That was impressive. <laughs> that was impressive. I just think I it's important that. that the church prays, but that the church just knows, that we know what's going go. on. And go. we realize that in many corners of the world, Following Jesus is still a life or death situation. I love that. Good word for all of us. A good reminder for all of us. We'll stick around. When we return, we're going to be talking about momentary suffering compared to the future glory in heaven. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're happy that you're here with us today. Um, Brian, you wanted to talk about a former football coach named Mark Richt, who I I just learned about, but I want to hear you tell the story because this is actually very inspiring. Yeah, Mark Richt is still a television analyst, but he's a former coach most known, most well known in the college football world for I think he was 15 years at the University of Georgia, which is a major, major football institution. He also coached at his alma mater, uh, the University of Miami, Uh, but he's uh, while still doing TV. Uh, he, he, um, people have been wondering, like, where is he at? Like, people haven't seen him. And, mm. and he wrote this on Twitter recently. Uh, and when I read it, I was just like, and that's inspiring, that's challenging, and that's probably worth talking about. Okay. Like, this. So, so, you know, he's just still a young guy, 61 years old, which is still young. Yeah, it is. Uh, he is a Christian. He serves as a national spokesman for Send Relief, which is a ministry of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So kind of a well-known guy. Mark Richt wrote this on Twitter the other day. He said, uh, I've been waddling around lately and people have asked me what's wrong. Hmm. I've decided to tell everybody at the same time. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Truthfully, I look at it as a momentary light affliction compared to the future glory in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, for promising us a future blessing of a glorified body that has no sin and no disease. In the meantime, I'm going to enjoy the blessings that I do have. See you on the ACC network. That's where he still works. So he came out, you know, public figure, public declaration. He comes out and he shares, I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's. That's why, you you know, I'm waddling Mm. around a little bit. And, and, you know, people get these diagnoses every day, whether it be Parkinson's or cancer or whatever else it might be. Uh, and his response here is very, very biblical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look at this as a momentary light affliction compared to the future glory in heaven. That is straight out of the words of the Apostle Paul. Yep, that's right. Man, that would be hard to write and hard to say. Like you're a yes. football coach. You are, you know, you're athletic. You're you're used to your whole life has been about uh, physical activity, right? Mm-hmm. And now you've been given this dis- you've been given this diagnosis mm-hmm. of a disease yep. that is going to rob your physicality will uh, eventually likely rob you of your life yep. uh hopefully years down the road. Uh but in his announcement for it he's able to say that this is a momentary light affliction compared to the future glory in heaven and uh, Aubrey, when I read stuff like that, like I said earlier, I get really encouraged. Like, wow, there are people who who view their their even bad news, their bad diagnoses mm-hmm. this way. Yeah, uh, that they're able to do that. But two, 
I don't know if I could do like I, I don't know that that would be my first response. And I, he didn't just get this right. I'm sure, sure he's, he's been had time to process it. But it yeah. does go into my mind going, how do you get to the point as Christians where it's not just things that we read and things that we speak, but really um, anchors that we live by that say, hey, my life has been turned upside down. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's, uh, but it's a momentary light affliction because right. of the future glory that awaits me. Right. Like I don't. I don't know. There might be people out there right now struggling with that exact thing right now. But I don't I'm asking you the really difficult question. How do you get there? How do you get there? I mean, this obviously is a a man of mature faith, Mm -hmm. right? I think this is one of those marks of maturity, marks of a mature Christian that you sort of put your stake of faith into the ground and say, even if I have Parkinson's, I will worship my God. Like Mm. it, it makes me think of. I've probably said this on The Common Good before, but it it makes me think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Mm -hmm. right, in the fiery furnace. Like, our God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol. I feel like it's that same mindset, right? Like, I have Parkinson's. Even if I never get healed from this, I am not going to bow down to anything else, not to fear, not Mm -hmm. to pain, not to suffering, but I'm going to cling to my future hope, and that's one day this is all sanctifying in me and preparing me for eternal glory. And I, you know, it, it seems like in some senses, that's a choice we make when mm. faced with suffering to remind ourselves of those things. Like you think of David constantly reminding himself, like, be at rest, oh my soul, be at rest, oh my soul. Like we have to, we have to preach to ourselves often. But I also think this is a work of the Holy Spirit in mature Christians yeah. that can have this sort of eternal perspective. It also brought to mind, and this may be an unfair comparison, but you think about when Robin Williams, the comedian, mm. uh, committed suicide, there was some suspicion that part of what led to his death was a reaction to his Parkinson's diagnosis. And of yeah. course, we don't know that that's true, but that was some of the story around the time. And, you know, you see kind of two totally divergent reactions to the same disease, right? One that that felt like the end of the road for him and he mm. couldn't live. And the other who's saying, no, this is this is light. This is momentary. I've got eternal glory coming. Mm. And I certainly hope that we can be people who choose hope in the midst of suffering. Yeah, because I, I want people out there to know what Mark Rick says here is 100% biblically true. Like, this is the hope that we have. Right. Uh, it's the hope that because of what Jesus has done, uh, we do not need to look. This, this world is broken, yeah. right? Like, Parkinson's is a part of this world. Yes. Cancer is a part of this world. Yes. And, uh, you know, um, all, all of these bad things are a part of this world, uh, but they're not part of the next world. That's it. And so we we live in this already, not yet. And and the already for Mark Richt is, I have Parkinson's. The not yet is, but I'm going to a place, there's coming a day mm-hmm. where the, I'm going to look back and this is light and momentary. It doesn't feel light and momentary right now, yeah. but there's a future glory coming in heaven that a lot will allow me one day to look back and go, uh, that doesn't exist anymore. That's not part of my reality or any of our reality. And, and and I, you know, that perspective must be so freeing at a moment like this. But I would have to think you have to fight for it, right? Certainly. Like, oh, I just I need to hold on to that. But but I would also suggest that we don't wait until the bad diagnoses mm. in order to kind of hold on to these things. And so I am wrestling with like, how do you own this? And then how does it? you know, determine how you live now, because also we don't want to say, well, just hold on for heaven one day, right. just hold <laughs> right, on for right, heaven. One day. Right. Like, you still got to live your lives and we still have things to do yeah. here, but it is, I, I guess, how do you explain to people this, 
this tension of the already not yet. Uh, I, you know, I, it always makes me think of a, a bee sting. This is what I think mm. of when I think of already not yet. Because, uh, you know, um, when a bee stings you, the bee often dies, but the stinger is actually still poisonous. And mm. I think that's a way we can think about the already not yet. That, like, on the cross, sin, death, uh, the powers and principalities were defeated, mm-hmm. but the stinger is still there and the stinger is still poisonous. And until Jesus returns, um, there's still going to be impact of sin, impact of death, impact of evil that we live with. When Jesus returns, the bee and the stinger are done, yes. you know? And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a reminder that everything is kind of both and right now until Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. It's a reminder that, I think the bigger reminder is that none of our suffering is pointless with God. That's good. All of it, God is working in a salvation. God is working in a sanctification. God is revealing himself in the midst of our suffering and that all of it is leading to, like um, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians and Mark Richt here talked about the future glory that we have in heaven. And so we, you know, you have to process through this stuff and not pretend like it's not real. You have to hold both the, the pain and the glory, the you know, the heartache and the hope that is coming one day. Absolutely. And and to be reminded of the good news that there is coming a day where there will be no more death, yep. no more tears, yes. no more struggle, no more Parkinson's. Yes. Uh, and Mark Richt has figured out a way, at least um, publicly here and hopefully in the back in, in his day to day uh, life uh, that that he can hold on to that as his reality, and so I wanted to bring that to us because uh, it's just a challenge. It's mm-hmm. it's it's good news. It's a challenge. It's all kind of wrapped up because all of us at some point in our lives, Jesus says, "Not if you have trouble, but when you have trouble." And yeah. the question becomes, how do you process that trouble? Yeah, that's good. Good word, Brian, and thanks, Mark Rick for Mark Rick for your example. Can't wait to um, keep seeing how that plays out. All right, next up, we're going to talk about some pop. Culture. We're talking Britney. We're talking <laughs> J-Lo. We're talking Ben Affleck. We're going to have a lot of fun. So stick around. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are so thrilled to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Brian, we're going to talk... Pop culture. Pop culture. We're going to talk about some of your favorite people, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, and then we're going to talk about Britney, and I know you're a super fan of all three. No, that is not true. <laughs> that is, not only do I love pop culture, right? Like, I'm, I'm a, as we've talked here, I'm a, I'm yeah. a people magazine, uh, just, I, I love it. Yes. I, I love to yes. be like, you know, you go to a doctor's office or go get your haircut, and you're like, oh, people magazine, I hope they don't call me for a while, I can read this or I whatever. get cut up. And, uh, but, uh, controversial take here. Okay. Don't, uh, much like my Meghan Markle take that you disagreed with, I'm yes. not a fan of Jennifer Lopez. Okay, let's hear about that. How I come? don't know why. Something about Jennifer, I don't know, I don't have good reason. Just an instinct. The same reason as when I told my wife the other day when the radio was on that I that I dis, I will change the channel every time Kelly Clarkson comes on. <laughs> I have no reason. I just do just it. Just your so, reaction. J-Lo, she was in those dance competitions that my wife and daughters would uh-huh. watch. And yeah. I don't know. Like I, I don't know. Like, right. I know. Now we're back to Benefer. Right, yeah, that's ben what Affleck I was. So, what do you think about Benifer? They're back together, apparently. Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez back together. He, you know, did you ever have that friend in high school or college? Maybe you were this person who, like, you had that other long-term boyfriend or girlfriend, uh-huh. and that when 
you, you, it was always, well, I'm not saying they're unhealthy. Maybe they're great, but it always felt like they, you, when you broke up, it was a good thing. But if there ever was a point where neither of you were with somebody or yeah. neither of them were with somebody, they always ended up back together. Yeah. Kind of feels like feels that, doesn't that it? way. Yeah, feels that way a little bit. Like it's just, you know, they were engaged at one point yeah. and uh, it just feels like they kind of circled back to each other after she broke up, uh, broke off the engagement with Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. So it feels like a lot of engagements around There's these. a lot of engagements. <laughs> I agree. I'm a little suspicious of all of the engagements and all of the jumping from relationship to to relationship for both Ben and J Lo, like because right. Ben has jumped from relationship to relationship to relationship too. So, who knows? Maybe they finally found love. We'll see. Hopefully, <laughs> they don't make another <laughs> terrible movie together. But we will see what happens with them. Okay. More importantly, uh, some Britney Spears yes. living in a conservatorship nightmare right now. This has been really kind of painful to watch. But basically, Britney Spears, if you don't know. Um, her family instituted a conservatorship about, I guess it's been 13 years now. That's right. Remember when she shaved her head and she yes. used the bat on a car? It was that time. Yeah, it was. she was going through some difficult stuff with her mental health. And so people close to her uh, did this, kind of took control of her finances and her social media and basically her life in order to protect her. At the time, though, they thought people around her thought it would be for a few months because she was obviously unwell but now she's been controlled for years mm-hmm. and she is really trying to fight back. People around her fans are starting to fight back. There's like a whole hashtag called Free Britney. Right. Um, and it's kind of painful to watch, honestly. We've got a little bit of audio for you to listen if you're not familiar with the story. Britney Spears fight for her freedom. So many different angles to her story and so much we're learning this week about the pop superstars conservatorship. We brought in legal analyst Ariva Martin to help break it all down for us. Good morning to you, Ariva. Good morning, Eva. So let's start with the thing that I think fans were most shocked about. Following Spears' emotional testimony last week, the latest court ruling didn't end Britney's conservatorship. And A lot of people were expecting, but it didn't happen at the very least, that they would remove her father from it altogether. Can you help us understand how the judge came to this most recent ruling? Well, it's important to note that this ruling related to a petition that was actually filed in November of 2020. So it did not take into account the explosive testimony that we heard last week from Brittany. This was the judge ruling that Brittany's father would not be suspended as a conservator, as had been requested by that earlier petition. Also... This ruling confirmed that wealth management company Bessemer would be co-conservator with Britney's dad. So anyway, it just, you know, it seems like a this poor woman has been controlled and kind of been imprisoned by that control for a very, right. very, very long time. And I think it's pretty heartbreaking. I think a larger question is um, how we consume people mm-hmm. as uh, as consumers, right? Like, I do think Britney Spears has been someone since she was a young teenager who has been consumed yes. and been sold and been made to just entertain and make money. And mm-hmm. I think there's some real sadness in that, especially for people who have been created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And I think another question is, too, do we... How often are we making ourselves commodities just to be consumed, too? So what, what do you think about this? And if you want to, Brian Off-Air was singing Britney Spears. You could sing for us the as you start this. The beauty of it was this. that it was Off-Air. Oh, yes, I yes. you'd entertain us. Oops, okay. I will not do that again. So, uh, <laughs> so the conservatorship is just a weird story yeah. because uh, obviously the judge thinks that she needs it, but 
you feel like these things are only for months, not 13 years. Right. And you listen to her talk about how her entire life is controlled. Uh, there was a story that she makes tens of millions of dollars and is given like a $2,000 a month allowance. Yikes. Like there's like it's also controlled like. I mean, not to be too graphic, but like literally birth control is is mandated on her, like stuff like this Wow. where you're like, man, that feels how does that happen? But clearly the law thinks and so I don't want to speak necessarily to whether it's needed or not. But it does feel like on a uh, cynical side, it feels like even her dad, uh, Brittany's being used a little bit yeah. to produce money. Like yeah. to, to, she still produces a lot of money. She was. You know, she was a judge on, man, what, maybe the, vo- not the voice, one of those shows, right. America's Got Talent or something. Right. And I read somewhere that that was like a $20 million gig. Wow. And, and so she does make a lot of people a lot of money. And I think you make an interesting point. What happens when we uh, stop thinking about the person and start yeah. thinking about the commodity? Yeah. And, and it becomes really drastic when you think of somebody like a Britney Spears, but Maybe we do that in the church world. Oh, that person's an unbelievable speaker or can do this, but we don't think about the person. Or we we do this all over the place. And so I I do in a strange, you know, pop culture story, you know, there's, you know, there's usually not much to it. But I do think it causes us to ask where is a person's value Mm. found? And uh, Britney Spears, it sounds like for her. Uh, she's been told for a long time, your value is in what you can produce, yeah. the money you can make, the the songs you can produce, uh, and that that has had some really negative consequences. Yeah, it it seems heartbreaking. And, and, you know, this is all, you know, this is a little unfair, but just even looking through her social media, like I, I was going through her Instagram recently, just as kind of following the story and her Instagram is a little weird, too, mm-hmm. and I think part of that is because her social media is being controlled. Now, it's worth saying that the judge did not give her, did not get rid of that conservatorship. And so the judge obviously saw something or recognized something that this needs to be in place still. I don't understand that. That's but right. at the end of the day, we've got a grown woman who has now been made to be a commodity. And there I don't know. I, it kind of makes me check my own spirit. Like even the fact that I'm scrolling through her Instagram page <laughs> to find more like, am I turning this image bearer into something that God doesn't want? And, and not just about Britney Spears, but in general, like you said, are there pastors we consume? Are there churches we consume? Are is there Are there people that we turn into products because at first we're supporting them and excited about them, but soon it just becomes about like what we can get? Right. And I think we have to be careful about that. We have to be careful about making ourselves into commodities mm-hmm. and making other people into commodities. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I'd say about Britney Spears is even if she needs this conservative conservatorship right now, yeah. like if it, what does that say about her upbringing mm-hmm. and how she was treated? Mickey Mouse Club or, you know, songs from hand. early on. She's in the spotlight early on. What does it say that a late 30-year-old woman needs – that sort of oversight, what does that say about the past 20, 30 years yeah. of her life? And yeah. I think with, I, 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 when I watch these things, I feel sad for people like yeah. that and just how they've been kind of used and treated. And people out there probably going, you feel sad for somebody who can make tens of millions of dollars a year? Right. I do. I right. really do. Right. I, yeah, I do too. I think it's good for us to just be mindful. And, you know, uh, again, we've been calling the common good folks to pray for the global church. We can pray for these celebrities in situations like this as well. Well, coming up next, we've got some feel-good stories from the Good News Network, one of our favorite places. So stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Wednesday. Well, it's actually Wednesday evening. It's now. It's not even Wednesday afternoon. So hopefully you're headed home to a good dinner. Every time we hit the end of the show, I'm thinking about dinner. I'm getting hungry. (laughs) So I hope you have some good dinner, some good family time, some good friend time Mm -hmm. you're going home to. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we have some good news for you. We like to close out the show and send you on your way with something encouraging and inspiring and one of our favorite places to go for good news is the good news network and so something we like to do every once in a while is just read you some of the articles that they're sharing there because they're always so positive and fun and uh, so brian why don't you kick us off with one of those good news network articles yeah this one's really interesting four day work week is a huge success in iceland Hey, I like that. Nothing gets nothing beats getting from Monday to Friday before a coworker tells you it's a three day weekend. But what if that is how it was every Friday? For those who don't decide their own working hours, a trial of a thirty five hour work week without a corresponding drop in compensation among twenty five hundred workers in Iceland has shown that the old punch clock's feeding schedule may truly be not be the most productive form of labor. So the report was conducted by a think tank. Uh, a couple think tanks, and they found that negative markers like burnout, stress, necessary overtime, and disconnection with friends and family all went down, as would be expected, but that productivity remained at worst unchanged and often improved in these shorter work hours. The trials were such a success that following their conclusion in 2019, mass renegotiation by labor unions means that 86% of Icelanders are now working non-traditional work weeks, which could include five to six hour working days or four day work weeks. Love that. I mean, I do think there's something to be said there about just rethinking how we always have done things. Right. Absolutely. And, and the idea that especially with technology and stuff that we could instead of working more, work less and maybe be more productive I think is uh, and be healthier. I, I, I'm all for this. I know you and I are pastors. A lot of people say we have one day work weeks, but not true. <laughs> I wish that was true. That is absolutely not true. But there is something to be said here about the four day work week that studies are showing that productivity did not go down, but health went up. I think that is worth considering. I feel like there are more and more studies around that, too. And so it is definitely worth paying attention to. I like it. I like a four-day work week. Okay. This one has a little bit of audio. This is the uh, Tim Shriver. He's the CEO and chairman of the Special Olympics, and he um, organized a 24-hour event called the Call to Unite. And really, this was an opportunity just to unite inspiring speakers around unity, mm-hmm. especially um around people with special needs, encouraging, empowering, instead of being so divisive. And so let's listen to a little bit about the call to unite. We've been looking at this issue. I've been looking at it really pretty much my whole life, looking at it from the point of view of people with disabilities, looking at it from the point of view of kids growing up in urban America. Why are we so divided? Why are we so hostile towards each other? Why is there so much contempt? But we see a big groundswell going the opposite direction. And I think this pandemic just awakened people to the reality we can't make it divided. I mean, we literally don't survive. I mean, it's a life and death question. And I think many of us knew that before and we hungered for it. We did polling data that, you know, people said that division and uh, hostility was the number one problem in the country. And they all said, they're starving for a change, 80, 90%. We want something different. We know we're divided. We want something different. So in a sense, this call, the reason it's so crazy audacious is that so many people are starving 
for an opportunity to side with something other than hostility and contempt and vitriol and anxiety. Anyway, I love that. I love that, you know, this is something we talk about a lot on The Common Good. In a world that's so divided, it seems like, just bent on destroying mm-hmm. each other. He's mm-hmm. saying, no, we need each other. We need to support each other now more than ever. So I think that uh, podcast, The Call to Unite, that 24-hour event, is going to be really, really cool. cool. All right, what you got next, I want to talk golf, because I love golf. <laughs> Do you? Okay. Don't play it enough these days, okay. but I love golf. A man in Wisconsin golfed 114 holes to raise money for veterans. One local golfer, it says, took July 4th celebration to another level. He golfed more than 100 holes to raise money for veterans. Carl Meyer has golfed at least 100 holes for the past 14 years on the 4th of July. He's a board member for the organization called Hire Heroes, H-I-R-E, Hire Heroes USA. They help returning military veterans uh, start careers after they complete their service. It's a cause close to his heart. On Independence Day, uh, he golfed 114 holes in honor of the 14th year of the tradition. People and organizations wow. contribute sponsorships for every hole Meyer completes. 14 years and $1.1 million later, he does not plan to stop. Uh, and so that's just amazing. That and is amazing. The stamina here of this guy... Uh, I'm looking for an age on him because he doesn't look necessarily like I, I don't mean to be mean. He doesn't look like a youthful guy, right? He's not younger than us. Yeah. Uh, but he goes out and he golfs 114 holes. I'm at a stage of life right now where if I golf 18 holes, I'm like, I'm done. Like, I mean, if I golf like one hole, that's how <laughs> I feel. <laughs> even by like the 14th hole, I'm kind of like, all right, this I got stuff to do. Let's move on. So golfing 114 holes uh even for someone who loves golf like myself, I'm not sure how fun that sounds. But then to do it for a purpose that has now raised over a million dollars. What a cool organization. Yeah, that's to very say, cool. To think about what happens when men and women come out of their military service, right? How do they find jobs? Yeah. How do they get careers? And and to raise this money like this, what a cool story. What a great guy for doing this for veterans. That is so fantastic. Okay, this is another one, a brave four-year-old. You can actually watch a video of this on Good News Network. But um, a fire broke out in her house in Florida. Her name is Amelia German, four years old. The air fryer had caught fire. This is my nightmare, by the way. Mm. But she sprinted off to alert her dad. And then... She tossed the fryer into the pool. (laughs) This four-year-old saved her family's home. Her dad, of course, saying he's very thankful. I'm sure part of him is thinking she should not have touched the air fryer that was on fire. But still, this precious four-year-old in a tutu saved her family and somehow didn't get burned in the meantime. So how specific are you there? Is your nightmare actually a flaming uh, no, no, air no. fryer? No, no, no. Is this your nightmare? No, no, no. My nightmare is one of my little kids grabbing a on-fire air fryer trying to save us, and in the meantime, they get horribly burned. That's should, more of my you nightmare. You just never use an air fryer. I then. don't. I, I never <laughs> use an air fryer. Do you feel the so. same way about toasters? Nope. Just um, simply, simply kitchen fires from air fryers. Air fryer. That's very specific. Yeah. But hey. No, it's more about my kids in fire. That's my nightmare. Okay. I don't want my kids Whatever around fire. The right. If they're doing s'mores, that's okay. But you know. Okay. Trying. I don't want them to try to save us. I want them to call nine one one. Okay. But way to go, little Amelia German. And you don't have a pool. 
So yeah, exactly. Where would your They're kids just throw, throw it on the trampoline, <laughs> and that's not going <laughs> to be good. That's going to get worse. Not going to be good. All right, last one I've got for you: okay. revolutionary machine that grows new skin for burn patients. Kind of a theme here. Unveiled. Uh, Look at that. This is kind of creepy slash good news. A little okay. bit of everything. A piece of skin the size of a nickel. When placed inside a revolutionary Swiss bioengineering machine, that's my nightmare, uh, can create a skin graft the size of a manhole cover. Excuse me? Neither totally real nor totally artificial, the new machine about the size of a coffee table allows skin to be stretched to much greater sizes in an effort to aid in the millions of people who suffer debilitating injury or death from burns. That's... uh. That's amazing. That's actually amazing. And one little piece of editing. I don't know that this machine is helping people who suffer death from burns. Good point. Good point. It's <laughs> not, not probably sure saving helping. lives. But if their skin has been completely... Today. Yeah, I can tell you are. Let's, let's try to rewind and save that, Brian. That's a great story, it's though. a great, great story. Great. Good news. Good news. New skin being produced. That is really cool. Well, we hope these stories encouraged you or at least made you laugh <laughs> on the common cynical. good on or yeah, or if you're cynical, then you're just here with Brian. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the common good today. We'll be back tomorrow from four to six p.m. for Brian Fromm. I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>